Welcome to Reach, your platform to connect with other executive assistants and acquire game-changing knowledge and perspective. Reach is designed to inspire your workday, guide you through pivotal moments in your career, and transform you into the executive assistant you've always wanted to be. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Reach. This is your host, Jessica Van. I'm the founder and CEO of Maven Recruiting Group, and I have some awesome guests in store for us today. I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. If you are an executive assistant who's curious about your rights as an employee, or perhaps you work in an environment where you're tasked with being the de facto HR person at times, or even setting employee policy, then this episode is for you. Today, we're diving into the complex world of employment law with two experts in the space who know the ins and outs of this topic. And I promise you, I promise, 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 this is going to be a fun episode. These two are hilarious. So do not click off just because I said law. It's going to be fun and it's going to be relevant. So hang in there. Our guests today are Angel Horasek, founding partner and attorney at, attorney at law in the offices of Angel Horasek, and Iral Robbins-Umel, civil and employment attorney at the law offices of Angel Horasek, and formerly an administrative judge with the EEOC. Hi, ladies. Hi. 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 Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us, Jessica. We're really excited to be yeah. here. Likewise. Thank you. So fun fact, Iral is one of my absolute best lifelong friends who I met while we were studying abroad long before she was an attorney, although she always aspired to be one. And that was in Holland over 20 years ago. So it's a real treat to have her here with me today. Uh, both of these ladies bring a wealth of knowledge and experience to the table, having represented countless individuals in cases that range from all forms of discrimination to wrongful termination to wage and hour disputes. In fact, Angel and her team secured one of the largest plaintiff verdicts in all of 2022 in all of California. With their track record of successfully navigating the intricacies of employment regulations, we've brought these ladies on to help inform you of your rights as employees, as well as to decode some of the more just obtuse areas of the law so that you can feel more empowered in how you navigate or consider situations that you may find yourself in. And moreover, we also know that many of our EA listeners are themselves people managers, hiring managers, and even at times policy creators. So it's really important to understand how your role may intersect with the law. So to start us off, I'd love for each of you to share with us what led you to specialize in this particular area of the law and what it is that you enjoy most about your practice area. Well, I'll start. Uh, this is Angel. So, gosh, um, I didn't intend to study this area of law when I went to law school. I actually thought I was going to be kind of a corporate transactional attorney. Um, but it turns out when I actually started practicing, no matter what the industry was, a lot of different things touch on employment. You have, obviously, people issues in every single type of department and in every single type of industry. And as those things kept cropping up, those was always a little bit more interesting and quite frankly, more uh, dramatic than, you know, 
company X sold, you know, 5,000 widgets to company Y. So I was a little bit more attracted to just the drama of it, of employment law, dealing with the mess of people in their lives at work. And that's kind of how I ended up here working on the plaintiff side. So you've got a flair for the dramatic angel. That's what you're saying. (laughs) Only in my work life, not in my personal life. And that's kind of why it was so interesting because I'm such a square the rest of the time. Um, You know, I've been married to a guy I met in high school. Like we've got, you know, two kids and the dog. And so this is just, this is where I get like, this is where the, you know, telenovelas part comes out, all of the drama that happens at work. Love that. How about you, Iroh? So um, when I started off in law school and Angel and I uh, met there and became friends, we went to the UCLA School of Law together. Um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I thought, you know, there were some areas of law that I wanted to do and, and tried, you know, internships and volunteer positions there, but didn't work out. And then It wasn't until I did this workers rights clinic um, at the law school, which was taken as part of this program called critical race studies at the law school that um, both Angel and I were a part of. And in that clinic, we represented a worker who hadn't been paid properly. Um, A classmate and I did um, guided by a professor. And it was just like so impactful, so meaningful, and it really stuck with me. And then um, the first job at a law, uh, law school was with a an employee union. And then I did various roles in labor and employment and ended up as a, an administrative judge with the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which is the primary federal agency that... Um, enforces the federal anti-discrimination laws. That's EEOC, if you're in the know. That's right. Okay, excellent. So another question for both of you is, and this is just more of an opinion question, but what do you think is one of the most sweeping and important legislative precedents in our country's history to impact the workplace? It would be the Civil Rights Act of 1964, uh, particularly Title VII of that act, as well as other anti-discrimination laws. And they all prohibit uh, discrimination against employees and job applicants based on what we call protected characteristics. And so those characteristics are race, color, national origin, religion, age, disability, genetic information, and sex. And the basis of sex covers pregnancy, pregnancy-related conditions, sexual orientation, and gender identity. And so um, all those laws have really helped us take us very far. And, and you know, we've made a lot of progress in terms of um, um, eradicating discrimination in the workplace, but there's so much more work that needs to be done. Uh, but yeah, that would be, I think, in my opinion, that those set of laws are are probably the most important. I would tend to agree with that. I I don't think it can be overstated, kind of the impact of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 
in terms of um, worker protection. I mean, before that, I don't think there was, there may have been state laws, um, but there was no federal law stopping you from getting fired just because you were a female or stopping you from getting fired just because you were black. Um, it's interesting to think about the time that it was, because I think if you think 1964, you had Kennedy who had been president. He was like the first Catholic president and it was like a big deal. Right. And so the fact that religion was a part of that, um, just goes to show like how the country was starting to shift, um, in light of what was happening with the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's outright, what I would consider to be just, you know, outright, undeniable, diabolical, egregious violations of the law, right? And there's also things that are maybe relatively less nefarious or even kind of unintentional violations of the law, who people that are maybe operating without a lot of knowledge or experience um, are likely to run into. So if we set aside the just egregious violations, if we were just to, just to focus on the more common transgressions that you see, um, could you share some of those with our listeners as far as what they can avoid, so they can learn to avoid, you know, potentially doing these things themselves? And, and what are some, some common pitfalls? That's such an interesting question. Um, so I want to, just from the outset, caution you, yes, the, the evil egregious violations of the law um, are generally less less common, but they still happen. <laughs> um, but assuming that somebody's not intentionally trying to, um, you know, purposely discriminate against somebody, I think what I roll and I see a lot of the time, um, especially as like new clients, is folks that have gone through some sort of um, life change, whether that's pregnancy, um, they have a disability now that they didn't before, or they needed medical leave, and then the work place did something um, regarding either accommodating them or failing to accommodate them. And they may not necessarily have known in the workplace that they were violating the law by failing to accommodate those folks' requests. So if somebody says, you know, I need to switch my schedule because I have to take um, dialysis in the afternoons from three to five, or, you know, I'm pregnant now, I just want to let you know. And then the workplace says, well, clearly we're going to take you off of the travel sales calendar because you shouldn't be traveling while you're pregnant. Those things, you know, sound like they're being taken with the person's uh, condition in mind. But unless the employee is actually asked to have a change to what their work is, like you shouldn't be making decisions about what that person can do without having an interactive dialogue with that person. So that's a lot of what we see in terms of um, violations where basically the employer's making a decision without involving the employee. Hmm. How about you, Iron? Yeah, I agree. No, I agree. I think um, so the reasonable accommodation process is what we're kind of um, alluding to. And basically for folks who are not familiar, it's if there is... Um, any change that an employee would like to see to their workplace or to how something is done at work um, because of their uh, medical condition or health issue, that maybe there's some limitations, standing, sitting, um, et cetera, or, or like mental health issues, and there's a request made to change something um, in the workplace because of that. 
And we see folks get tripped up a lot. You know, I know a situation where like, or there's a lot of situations where like employees maybe talk about their conditions, um, but like the supervisor doesn't recognize that there has, this is like a request for a reasonable accommodation, which then triggers like all these laws and rules and a process. And um, the law doesn't require what's called like magic words. It's just, you know, if the, if you could put two and two together that like a medical condition or a health issue is um, uh, calling for some sort of change and the supervisor becomes aware of that, then there should be that like a what we call an interactive process or like a back and forth in terms of um, like, oh, so what's your medical, what are your limitations? Not necessarily what your medical condition is, but what what's your limit, what are your limitations? Like, what are some ideas um, to change the workplace? And then there's also obligations on the employee. So if EAs, you know, raise this with their supervisors or um, management, then it's also incumbent upon them to provide maybe medical documentation or more information that's that um provides you know shed some light on what their limitations are because a lot are not obvious and so what happens is if your boss says okay it sounds like you need to change your workplace but i don't know exactly what the scope of issue is and then you say no you like you're not entitled to know anything about me then you're not doing your part uh, in the the process, and you're then not entitled to to that. And you know, I've had a situation, a case where that's like somebody was like, "No, you don't get to know anything about me, but I want this change." So, well, the word that you guys both said was interactive dialogue, and that doesn't feel particularly interactive to me. It feels more like stonewalling. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. It really depends. And it's incumbent upon folks that have that responsibility, um, either as management or as an arm of management to kind of help the employee because they're not going to necessarily know how to do that. There's one other thing that I realize that is super common um, that happens a lot, um, which is folks working off the clock. And generally, you know, depending on whether the EA is... Um, salaried or um, a wage earner, meaning it, either an annual salary or you're actually clocking in, clocking out. A lot of times things happen where you might clock out and then somebody says, oh, can you please just do this one other thing before you leave for the day? And then you're doing work that's not being compensated um, by the employer. That's that's one other thing that happens a lot. Mm -hmm. What is the appropriate time? If you are someone that requires an accommodation, a reasonable accommodation, what is the appropriate time to voice that? And I, I think that there's a lot of um, hesitancy and, and kind of fear about potentially ruining your chances of getting the role or whatever if you bring it up too soon. So like, do you have a recommendation of what, what stage of the process if someone is interviewing or, or considering a new role, does one voice that? I think there's a legal answer and then there's like a real life answer. So the legal answer would be 
arguably you're protected at any time that you voice the concern. In theory, you could say on your employment application, you know, I have narcolepsy and I want to be accommodated, right? Um, in a realistic world, I don't think that's something I would ever recommend an applicant do is disclose on their job application that they have a disability that requires an accommodation. Um, even though we have laws preventing, or rather laws that prohibit discrimination, um, it still happens. And so there's going to be, I think, some judiciousness needed when you're actually disclosing that. So this is actually a great question. It depends on what the accommodations being requested. So, for instance, if one is um, an executive assistant to an accountant, a CPA, and you say, you know, I've got a surgery that's scheduled for the first two weeks of April, I need to recover, like that's going to be a challenging time because that person's going to say, well, I, that's our peak season. Um, I don't know that we can accommodate that particular leave or something like that, right? So you'll want to think about what is the accommodation that's being requested in terms of the request that's being made. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I appreciate the distinction between the legal answer and the real life answer because I think that's just real talk. And I mean, that's, that's powerful, right? Yeah. Um, another point about this common transgressions that are not, you know, intentional or, or not as evil, I think would be potential coworker harassment situations. So like, say, you know, you come to work, you get familiar with folks, and people are joking around. And then, you know, things are said, um, like, we see a lot of lines that are blurred between like, okay, we're all talking as friends, we're like, you know, not not as professional or respectful. And then it kind of devolves and then maybe offensive statements are made and maybe, you know, people are hurt. Uh, maybe even, you know, what's called, you know, these microaggressions are made. So just like comments that um, are offensive and, and not on their own, just like outright severe, whatever, you know, um, super serious, but, you know, still, can create this environment that is um, uncomfortable and um, unpleasant. And so I think it's important for folks to distinguish. So do we want to talk about the difference between annoying workplace behavior and, and actual harassment? Because um, I was thinking about that when you said, Iral, some things that kind of blur the lines. Um, you'll see that happen sometimes, especially when people are familiar. Like, let's take, for example, you might have been working alongside some, not you, a person might have been working alongside someone for a year, and maybe that person gets pregnant or that person starts to transition, right? Maybe that person is um, transitioning, and maybe the coworker has a lot of questions about their journey, their choice to transition at that time, what hormones they're taking, what parts of their body are they keeping, right? Like that or not, or adding. Um, those kind of questions can be intrusive, but unless the person who is the subject of those comments actually says, you know, this is unwelcome. Um, I don't want to talk about this with you. 
the coworker doesn't necessarily know that those things are intrusive and rising to the level of harassment. So the person who is the subject of the comments really needs to make a voice and say, I need this to stop. Because otherwise the person doesn't know it's unwelcome. The person thinks we're friends or we're familiar colleagues. That's kind of, that's the bar. And if the person, the coworker persists in the discussion after kind of these comments, that's, that's the type of thing that then it becomes harassment. So what, what I'm hearing in that kind of the underlying sort of, um, I guess, assumption for me in that angel and correct me if I'm wrong, but is that there's a kind of a subjectivity to harassment and that it's a deeply subjective, deeply personal thing. There's not like a clinical definition of harassment per se. And that's why it's incumbent upon, as you said, the subject to, to voice and let somebody know what their boundary is, because what could be harassing for one individual is just fun and games for somebody else potentially. Right. That's correct. And the law actually says there's both subjective component and an objective component. So you have to think, is it subjectively offensive to the person who is the target? And then objectively, would a reasonable person say, yeah, I could see how that would be offensive, right? So you can think about a situation where if I'm going up to, let's say, Iro, okay, we're working together. And I say, hey, Iroh, girl, did you see what happened? Oh, yeah, girl, that was terrible. But if I go up to our paralegal, Ryan, and I say, hey, girl, did you see what happened? Like, he might be like, that's, why are you, you know what I mean? Like that, I don't know that you calling me girl is great. I don't like that. And objectively, maybe a reasonable person would say, yeah, I think, you know, calling a man girl, like I could see how he would be offended by that, right? Now, if I say, hey, girl, to Iroh, and she goes, you know, I don't really like that. Could a, a reasonable, random, objective person say, well, I don't know why she would be offended. Maybe she doesn't like it, but it's not harassing, right? So that's kind of the dichotomy. But obviously, the more, let's say, um, outrageous the statement or the comment, then you kind of, the less objectivity you're going to need, right? So obviously, some slurs that I'm not going to say here, <laughs> they could be in-group that people might use just fine, but if they're objected by anybody that's going to be something most reasonable people would say yeah I think that's that's harassing behavior so it is you're right to perceive it as both it is very much subjective because if the person doesn't object then you don't have a problem or rather if the person doesn't object then that it's not going to constitute harassment and the you know law requires um the conduct to be severe or pervasive in such a way that it creates an environment that's intimidating, hostile, abusive. And so that's the standards we're looking at is like subjectively, I can think conduct that is being directed at me is very abusive, very offensive. It, you know, it permeates the environment. It's pervasive. Um, But objectively, somebody else might think, no, you know, that's, that that's not something that I see as a as a as harassment or severe or pervasive. And then also there are things, as Angel was kind of referencing earlier, where it can only it doesn't have to be like this ongoing thing. It could be like a one-time thing. So for example, or one or two time times happening. So like slurs, you know, or touching. 
Um, you know, I had a case where somebody was in front of a computer in kind of like a shared workspace with like, you know, multiple employees and a coworker um, went and massaged um, an employee and they didn't really know each other. And like, he was just massaging her. He didn't ask for it. And she just stopped. And like uh, the whole business operation, like relied on her doing her job and then, you know, everybody else would do their job. So like the whole operation stopped and it only had to happen one time, right? Massaging one time. It's clear to everybody like this is not okay. But unfortunately in that situation, management didn't handle it well. They didn't separate the two or send the guy to a different shift. And also they blamed her. They were like, okay, well, you're, you're, when she reported it, she was like so emotional and upset, uh, you know, understandably. And they were like, okay, look, when you go back to the workplace, I really want you to be professional. Do not be disrespectful. Like they were counseling her. So, so anyways, um, so touching, you know, there's, there's certain things where if done once or twice, like that's enough, like that's going to be considered harassment. I have a fantastic example of a case that just came out last year for what I would call, well, could be argued as innocuous, um, but there was a company, and we see this a lot with, uh, I don't want to say edgy, but kind of younger, hipper, modern, um, disruptive companies, and they had a work site, and at the work site, they were playing current hip-hop music. And some of the music that was on their playlist had all sorts of words in it um, that objectified women and that used certain language that people, both men and women, felt were um, distasteful and offensive. Now, the people weren't playing, you know, management or whoever wasn't playing this music to offend those people necessarily. But when the people complained about it, management said, you know, this is part of our brand. Like, we are edgy. And so they kept playing the music. And the court held... No, that was pervasive. The music was there all the time. People had protested it and management didn't do anything to absolve them of this environment. And so they were going to be held liable. So, you know, it just goes to show. It does. So speaking about subjectivity and, and the employee's perspective here, what's the appropriate protocol for addressing workplace disputes or conflicts with an employer or a colleague. And I guess follow-up to that is, when is it appropriate to either bypass you know, or go around your company's internal channels and to call up, for instance, the law offices of Angel or Second <laughs> and seek outside counsel? Like, what's, that, what's that line look like? So Iroll and I were talking about this. And I mean, the consensus is basically people don't come to see us. People don't seek outside counsel until they've pretty much determined they've done all they can do in the workplace. They've exhausted all the internal channels and management is just not being responsive or not giving the response that's required by the law. And by the time they've come to us, they really are out of ideas. And outside of legal issues, it really feels like the employment relationship is irreparably broken. Um So things that we would suggest that people will have done before they seek counsel. Definitely report whatever is happening to your supervisor, preferably in writing. 
um, in writing doesn't necessarily mean like you have to write a letter and then put it in the mail. Like it could be an email um, sent to yourself, CC'd and to your supervisor. It could be an email to HR, also CC'd to yourself. It could be calling the HR hotline, but then also taking a screenshot of the length and duration of the call. So that way you have a record, at least that you can show saying I called and left a message. Um, sometimes workplaces will have like a fax, um, still happens, I guess, or a secure messaging system where you get a receipt um, that you contacted them. Very important for us is sometimes having things in writing because depending on how large the company is, the the person who is tasked with repairing whatever has happened is not necessarily a person's individual manager or supervisor. Sometimes there's an HR department that may be in another state and may not really have any idea what's going on, but you as the employee want to have at least a record um, that you reported what happened to somebody who had the ability to correct or prevent the situation. Yeah, I, I uh, agree to everything Angel said. Uh, the, what I tell our clients often, because they'll come to us and be like, I don't, I don't have everything in writing. And we say, look, it's totally understandable. Folks don't act like they're going to litigate something. Right. And so when we are making the case and we're putting together the facts and the evidence, you know, it's great to have everything in writing, but we also understand like that's just not like reality all the time. And we heard this conflicts like at the very beginning, right? We're talking about, uh oh, like I'm seeing like there's some issue brewing. Like I'm not, I'm not liking something here. Or something was said, and it's not like you want to go litigate, right? Like folks don't usually want to litigate. They want to stay and work. They want to be productive. They they want to, you know, earn a paycheck. Um, they want to have good relationships with their coworkers and their bosses. You know, like they want that. And that's completely understandable and totally natural. And so when you sense that conflict kind of brewing, which is inevitable because we're humans, we make mistakes. We offend each other. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be illegal, but, you know, we say something that's maybe disrespectful or whatever. So what do you do in that situation? And it's just, it's like, how do you handle conflict? Um, so one good thing to do is just to, like, step away, right? Just, like, step away from the situation, kind of de-escalate, you know, regroup, Um just check in with yourself, see how you're feeling, kind of check the facts for yourself. Because sometimes it's like when things are really emotional, like maybe there's facts that, you know, you think happened, but like after you think about it, it's like, oh, no, 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 it didn't happen that way. I like you know, to call talk that to the, I call that the, am I tripping? <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Is it me? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Just go to a friend where you're just like, you know, hopefully you have friends. Like, talk to, you know, this stuff about or a therapist or whatever. And then uh, take a couple days and then ask yourself, what, what do I want to see here? What's the outcome? 
And usually it's like, I want a better relationship. Like I want to provide feedback to this person so that something changes and we can have like a good working relationship. And so um, you can make that decision and say you do. When you have that conversation, you're like, hey, look, you know, the other day, you know, such and such happened and like you said this or you did this and the impact is this. Like I took it to mean blank and like, you know, I was hoping that you just don't do that anymore. An example that I, you know, talk about is like, like say like a supervisor provides feedback or critiques your work in front in like a public space and you're just very embarrassed. Like you're called, you feel called out. You feel like, oh gosh, I like, now everybody knows like I made a mistake. And so you could just say, hey, you know, it takes some time, you know, check in with yourself, you know, do the MI tripping test and have that conversation. And then if you do decide to have the conversation with your supervisor, just pull them aside and be like, hey, you know, like the other day, this is what happened. You know, I really appreciate getting you getting feedback from you. You know, I love feedback. I want to do better. I want to be a better employee. But, you know, I would appreciate if you do X, you know, and if your boss is great and wants to be a good boss and wants to see you improve and like have this good relationship, then they will adjust. You know, um, I can't guarantee, of course, that your supervisor is going to handle it or the other person, if it's a coworker, is going to handle it well. But at least for yourself, you decided, I'd like to change. We're going to have that conversation. I mean, that that type of conversation might not always be the, the greatest option. What if something was said that was like really offensive and very heavy and just creates lots of misery for you? Maybe you decide, I don't want to educate this person at this point. I don't, I don't want to give feedback. So then you think about going to HR. You think about maybe talking to upper management if you have to. And hopefully they handle it well. But, but if you have uh, that conversation with your supervisor, which is a kinder, gentler way to do it, I would document it absolutely in an email after the fact. Thank you so much for meeting with me. I really appreciated having a chance to speak with you about how I felt when you said blah, 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 blah at the potluck and you didn't like my, I don't know, status reports, right? Um, Because that way you're documenting that the conversation happened and you're making a record in writing. So that way, if, if later you have to figure out, did you actually report what happened? Yes, here's a timestamp thing. It's in your system, employer, like you have it. So... Let's say that you've done all of this and you've documented and you've gone through the appropriate protocols for escalation and are working through the internal channels and all of that within your workplace. What protections do employees have from retaliation? Mm. So, again, the, the, legal, <laughs> the legal world versus what actually exists. So, um, at least it depends on where you are. And I'm just going to speak in terms of federal law because uh, Iroh and I happen to be in California, but, you know, obviously you're going to have listeners at a lot of different places. There are many different laws um, that cover different types of retaliation. So you have a Sarbanes-Oxley law, which regards basically, I think it's SEC disclosures and, you know, insider trading type stuff. 
Um, I think that there's a federal whistleblowing law, but I don't exactly know what that one entails because I'm in California and we don't use it that much. Um, but depending on what the allegations are, there are different whistleblowing protections. The main key is that the employer cannot take an adverse employment action against somebody who has disclosed some sort of wrongdoing or illegality in the law. So whether that's I've reported an unsafe workplace under OSHA or I've reported I'm not getting paid um, you know, appropriate overtime as the FLSA would require, um, there are usually anti-retaliation provisions attached to those. And so the employer is not supposed to say, okay, well, you're fired for complaining. That's effectively what retaliation is. You're taking an adverse employment action against somebody for reporting um, either an act or an omission by an employer or by somebody contracted with an employer. Um, now, will employers tell you if they're firing you, they're doing it because you've made a report of unlawful activity? Generally, generally, they won't do that, though we've had some cases where the employer is, um, you know, has disclosed that. So that's always fun. But um, they won't usually say that's why, right? They'll usually come up with some other reason. And it's very difficult if you haven't made that protected disclosure in writing. So, yes, it is unlawful for an employer to retaliate um, for reporting unlawful activity or behavior. But you'll want to make sure that if you are going to engage in protected activity that you've made a record or have something to fall back on. You can also look at temporal proximity, which is something. So, obviously, if you disclose, um, I think you having me take these particular tax deductions for this client is violates the IRS code and then the next day you get fired, that's going to look bad. But one of the things that we'll look at is obviously, well, what was your employment like before this? Were you already on a performance improvement plan? Did you have a whole bunch of write-ups in your file? Had they told you they were going to close the entire office and it was only an office of two in the first place? Were you the only one terminated at that time? So there are a lot of other factors that go into whether someone actually has been retaliated against, but these are the things that we look at. Yeah. Great. So what specific issues might our audience, which is primarily executive assistants, so what specific issues might they encounter due to the nature of their position, particularly their proximity to the executive leadership team, right? So they might be working among or amidst the brain trust of the company, the top executives, CEOs, CFOs, COOs, CLOs of the company. Are there anything, any things they should be particularly aware of given the context of that working relationship? Which, which I'll also add could entail travel, could entail business trips together, could entail flights together, I mean, just all kinds of things, right? Late nights, uh, if, if there's like if they're prepping for a board or there's a you know horrendous press leak or something like this, right? Like there's just all of these sort of outstanding potential workplace situations that could arise given the nature of their work. Yeah, I I think um, they would because of their proximity to leadership and the regularity in which, you know, they communicate and the consistency that they communicate with leadership. I think just what we talked about earlier about just kind of the line between, you know, friend, 
friendly banter and harassing behavior, I think that's something to watch out for. Um, because with your supervisor, there is this automatic, you know, there's liability that they would assume. Whereas if your coworker, um, if it's just all coworkers talking, there's not necessarily liability unless somebody reports it to management. Um, so, so there's that. Um, the other is, I understand that there's a lot of um, times where the employees of the company will reach out to the EA as kind of like a confidant to be to say like, hey, look, this is what's going on. This is what I'm hearing about. Um, or this incident occurred. And I think in that situation, an EA should be kind of like, I think that's great, number one, that the EA is seen as somebody to trust with that information. Um, but it does put a lot of responsibility on them. Um, because they're not a supervisor, it doesn't mean that um, the reporting of the potentially harassing incidents or discriminatory behavior, that's a report. And there's like, a, you know, it triggers a whole legal process, but, or a process required under law. But I, I do think the EA has some things to consider, such as, do I share this with leadership? What do I share and how do I share it? And um, one, one, the first step would be to ask the person who's sharing that information, like, okay, so this is, I understand this is what's happening. That's very troubling. Like, would you like me to then share that information with, you know, so-and-so in leadership? Um, they might not be okay with that. They might just say, no, I don't, I don't want specifics. I kind of want to be anonymous. And so the EA could then relay like the issue to leadership and say, hey, look, um, anecdotally, this is what I'm getting from folks and, you know, talk through what's happening. And the EA might have some experience that they bring from other companies and say, well, when I worked at such and such company and this happened, here are some ways they dealt with this and prevented it in the future. So that's one one way. Or the EA can say, look, this is like really troubling. You know, thank you for sharing this with me. I really think that you should report this to HR. Um, or if there's no HR, you know, report it to a, a manager of some sort. I agree with definitely asking the person if, you know, it's okay to share that information because sometimes it, they don't want it shared. Um and it's important to respect folks as, you know, where they're at kind of in their work journey. One thing that was occurring to me that was interesting, if you're, so if you're an EA and you are in a situation, I mean, obviously you're working very closely with your executive, you're helping support them in all areas. Certainly some of that can cover personal stuff as well. If you're in a situation where you are finding that there is maybe a harassment type action brewing, um, it can be very awkward because certainly, one, the person to go to would be a supervisor. Well, that's the C-level person, right? Uh, if you go to HR, a lot of the times HR is 
at a lower level than the person you're supporting. And so then you are in a kind of a sticky wicket situation in terms of how do I expect HR to hold this person accountable or be able to intervene for me in a meaningful way when this person, the CEO writes the checks, right? The CEO decides who lives and dies. I don't want to how you know they're not going to be willing to go to the mat for me and I know that this is happening to me so that's always very difficult because those folks in the C-level are themselves managing agents and they set policy for the company um, what they can be mindful of is that they can it doesn't mean they're any less protected by the law if they still make that report they could report to a different C-level person so if something's happening you're the assistant to um, the CFO, you can always go to the general counsel or the CEO and say, you know, this is what's happening to me. Uh, I'm not really sure how to approach it. I don't want to involve HR at this time because it's sensitive. However, you know, I need some direction. And because the C-level folks are the ones that set policy for the company, they absolutely have the authority and ability to, to do something to prevent or stop the situation that's happening. Yeah, I think that's right on the money. I mean, I, I think that you've very accurately portrayed some of the sensitivities that come up in that situation. I think that there's um, the power dynamics are are very just very clearly, um, very clearly spelled out, and there's that. And I think there's also just I think there's a, a, a certain degree of of ambiguity at times. You know, all of these situations that I, I brought up, you know, they, I think they create opportunities for ambiguous situations or somewhat, you know, um, just, they're not, they're not, they're not cut and dry, right? You take people out of the context, you put them in other contexts where, you know, closing dinners or, um, whatever, you know, trade shows and travel and all of these other things that can very quickly, balloon in terms of the complication for interpersonal relations and interactions. Never mind alcohol, right? Like, which never is, mind alcohol never mind or alcohol other substances. Or other substances, which sure. are often kind of the lubricant in all of these situations, right? So yes. I think it's just something worth flagging, particularly for, you know, um, listeners at, at, at this level and at, and at our level. So yeah. yeah. And it's really tough, especially when like Ira and I were talking about this as well as when you have, let's say maybe it's not an established company, but it's a, it's a startup or a seed round company. And those companies tend not to spend money on things that are not revenue generating right immediately. Right. So they're not going to have money to spend on legal. They're not going to have money to spend on HR. You may not actually have anybody who's dedicated to making sure laws are followed and that people are protected, you know, arguable whether that's HR's job in the first place, but that's beside the point. But there may not be somebody who's designated as the go-to person on that issue. Maybe you have somebody who runs payroll. Maybe that person's an assistant to the controller or what have you. Um, it becomes very difficult at that point to negotiate who is the person that you can go to if there is an issue. When you're employee number 19... Um, at a big dream startup and you need to have extra bath and breaks because you're pregnant, like who do you ask for that without getting static, right? Like it, it becomes very difficult to kind of figure out who are those people. But at that point, you don't have a choice but to go to the founders or whoever the, the CEO is. Right. Well, and I would even argue that in a lot of cases, it's, the, it's, it's our audience that is the de facto person because it's very common that in the scrappy environment that you describe, the 19-person startup, what have you, 
They most certainly don't have a dedicated HR person at that point. They certainly don't have a CLO or a VP of legal or anybody like that. They may have a counsel on retainer, but I think it's unlikely. Um, and oftentimes we, you know, we meet these candidates where they're like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm the hyphenated person. I'm the EA, I'm the office manager, I'm the ops manager, I'm the de facto HR, I also process payroll and yeah. AR. Yeah. <laughs> One of the nice things about that though, sometimes when you have these PEO um, companies, you know, I won't name them, but you know, these people who do outsource the um, payroll provider and the insurance, they often will have a hotline if you actually look through their manual and that can be a person to call. Um, at the very least, to put it on record that this is an issue. So that sometimes is a resource that exists. Yeah, definitely. A bit. So this is a question I'm, I'm particularly curious about from, from what both of you are seeing. I feel like, you know, remote work has brought a newness to, to things. And, and certainly a lot of our companies and clients, you know, are, um, are remote and or I would say hybrid for the most part at this point. So... I'm curious, you know, with regard to this topic, what employment issues or new employment issues are there surrounding remote work? And I'm also curious if you're seeing, you know, potentially fewer workplace violations now that employees might have less physical interaction or less proximity to their colleagues. I'm just curious kind of anecdotally what you guys are experiencing. I... I would say it's the same, if not more. It's just another dimension of the workplace that has brought forth like issues, potential issues of harassment and discrimination, um, ranging from, you know, reasonable accommodation issues to, you know, I had a case where somebody kept holding Zoom meetings without their shirt on and wait that's um, real <laughs> yes. Oh yes you can't make this yes. up <laughs> you can't you cannot it was like kind of the beginning of the pandemic and you you know folks were like what am I going to do with my life where am I going to work I'm, I don't have to go into the office and you know some folks moved and temporarily or permanently. And I don't know about this situation, but this guy moved to Hawaii and uh, started doing Zoom meetings like on his condo balcony in front of the beach without his shirt on. With, you know, all his meetings, staff meetings and one-on-one <laughs> -on -one meetings and people were complaining. So, that's one, um, you know, example of how uh, this remote work has brought a new, a new type of situation. Um, I like to call that like a uh, Tarzan situation. <laughs> and I've had like the opposite where it was like a Winnie the Pooh situation where the CEO looked fine from here. But then when they stood up, there were no bottoms. Like... So, <laughs> yes, I, I agree with Iroh. Like, I think it's gotten worse. There's also like this weird bleed of y your time has become infinite, right? Like the time that you are available, there's no, you're not leaving the office, you're at home. So people feel free to kind of 
bleed into what used to be your personal time and the boundaries have kind of shifted. Um, people get upset. Your camera's not on. They want to see into your house. Like we just had an arbitration where that one of the points of issue was the person didn't have uh, a great zoom background. And it's like, that's not necessary yeah. for them to do their job, but yeah. And, and that person then didn't get, you know, that was one of the reasons why they couldn't get a reasonable accommodation. Um, she had a medical issue that required her to stay at home and she could do all her job duties. I mean, nearly all of them um, from home and they would not accommodate her by allowing her to work remotely, including conducting Zoom meetings with staff. So you have those issues and then you also have like disparate treatment. So it's like, well, how come I can't work from home, but you know, so-and-so can, like we have the same job, you know? Um, so it's actually added a whole new dimension with a whole new, Interesting. You know, all these different yeah. types of scenarios. Yeah, I guess in my mind, I was thinking, well, people are less together, so therefore maybe they're harassing each other less or less of that. You know, like the example you gave, Iroh, earlier of the coworker just, you know, for no obvious reason, standing up and massaging the other coworker. Like, less of that kind of stuff, maybe, was in my mind, I was thinking. But you know what? Like you said, Angel, people are just messy and they're always going to be messy and they will find new ways to be messy. And new and novel ways. <laughs> just, it is a given. It is a given. All right. So as we wrap up here, I have a couple rapid fire questions from listeners. So we're going to do like a lightning round, a lightning legal round. Um, all right. I think we covered this one already. What counts as retaliation? I think we covered that already. So I'm going to skip that one. Um, should I sign a severance agreement if I'm terminated? Not without talking to a counsel. Great. Okay. Um, if I'm having a conflict with my manager, what can HR actually do for me? <laughs> um, it depends if they're good HR, yeah. I think. They have a I lot mean, of there's power. Such a, they do. There's such a wide range of quality in terms of HR and, and what they do. They the can face. do a lot, but they sometimes won't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I also think it's important to just say this on behalf of HR professionals everywhere, that they're not necessarily legal professionals. Some of them might be, but a lot of times HR is an umbrella for a lot of other things, such as employee development, employee training, career pathing, learning, payroll, employee benefits. Like These are all things that relate to the employee, but are not necessarily rooted in knowledge of the law. So right. there's that. No, yeah, I agree. And I, I, I think that there's amazing HR professionals out there and they know how to handle conflict. They will like compassionately and kindly lead both parties that are embroiled in dispute through a conflict resolution process. You know, like they, you know, there are lots of folks who know how to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but do. they can't do anything about it unless they know about it. Yeah. True. Yeah. Okay. Can my employer restrict when I take PTO? Within reason. So again, using my example, like, oh, I work for the accountant, but I want to take a spring vacation the beginning of April. Like that's generally mm -hmm. going to be sometime they can say that's our busiest time. Like that's not allowed. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, if it's 
reasonably asked. It's enough in advance. It's not the busy time. It shouldn't be an unreasonable restriction. What if someone's on a PIP also, and the employer's concerned about that? They can, can they restrict it due to the PIP? Depends. Like maybe if the PIP uh, is, if like, you know, performance is like related to their time in and, right. you know, maybe they're, I mean, if they're asking for like two weeks off or three weeks off versus like, you know, a day here and there, you know, I think that is different. But I think like in terms of restrictions, the restrictions should be the same for everyone. They can't treat people differently mm-hmm. um, be- because of protected characteristics in relation to PTO. Fair. Okay. What should I do if I'm asked to engage in activities that raise ethical or moral concerns? You, so, I would uh, suggest that you push back gently and say, I'm very concerned about engaging in these activities because they raise ethical or moral concerns and possibly unlawful concerns. Is there anybody I can talk to about this, about doing whatever you're asking me to do? I think that kind of puts you in a safe harbor in terms of retaliation. It only protects unlawful activity, but a lot of times things that are unlawful are also immoral and unethical, but sometimes not. So it depends on how you couch it, but it depends on what it is, right? And also, I mean, this is where you also want to put it in writing. I know it's uncomfortable for a lot of people to do it, but this is where this is important too. Yep. All right, final question on the rapid fire. What red flag should I look for if I'm asked to sign an NDA? At the beginning of the employment or at the end of the employment? Um, okay, in our context, it's usually at the beginning of like an uh, interview process that they might be asked to sign an NDA. Yeah. Um, so in the onboarding process, Certainly have it reviewed by counsel. I'm assuming that NDA is going to be a part of whatever engagement agreement. I would double check and see if there's an arbitration agreement that's required as a part of that onboarding. Um, I would also look and see in terms of non-compete, non-solicitation language, depending on where you are. Some things are allowable and some things are not. In California, we have a very strong anti um pro-competitive language, anti-non-competes. So depending on where you are, some of the language that you're given may be unlawful. But with regard to the NDA, they can certainly restrict how you communicate information about the employment. Certainly trade secret issues are a part of that. I would say they can be very standard, but some can be onerous, especially in Los Angeles where we are, where you can be working for some very high popular name folks and they do not want their business in the street. To be talked about on a podcast with us right now? <laughs> We've kept it very clean. I'm not worried about us. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, final question. So usually we ask our, our guests who they would choose to support because most of our guests tend to be executive assistants or former executive assistants. In your guys' case, I'm going to ask you if there was one person or group of people you could have defended, a case you would have loved to have taken on, what would you choose? Oh, I know it's hard, and I'm totally throwing this at you guys like a curveball. <laughs> oh my goodness, a case I would have taken on. I really support kind of the pay equity issue that the U.S. Women's National Team brought. Um, I think the revenue that they generated, you know, and their arguments in terms of how they outperform the men and what's expected of them. I think that was a tremendous case. 
That's awesome. I'm going to tell my daughter that. She's a huge athlete. Okay, well, that's a great question. I don't have a particular case in mind, but I do know that there is great work being done out there by advocates and organizations in the area where the workplace intersects with mental health. Um, Folks face discrimination, they don't get their reasonable accommodation that they request um, or, or any accommodations, or they face harassment because of mental health issues that they experience. And I feel like it um, in, in my work, it feels like either um, supervisors or managers feel like they either know about or feel like they know about mental health conditions and act according to their assumptions or perceptions or they don't do much and they don't put much thought and care into learning about the mental health conditions at issue and what their obligations are. So um, I'm just really um, in awe of the work being done by advocates in this area. I think that we lived up to our promise, which is that we would be entertaining and and a, a tour de force of the legal industry. So kudos to you ladies. Thank you for being our spirit guides of the legal world today. <laughs> I really appreciate this. I know there's a lot of really, really meaningful takeaways in this in this episode. So thank you both for sharing your experience, your knowledge, your craft, your discipline, and your passion with us this afternoon. Thank you for having us. This was fantastic. And if people feel the need yeah, to so speak with, um, with you all or are, in seek, are seeking representation, what's the best way for people to get in touch? The best way to get in touch is to visit our website, um, www.horacekelaw.com, horaseklaw.com. And um, we have some information about us on the website, and you can certainly uh, reach out to us on the contact page there, and we can get started to see if we can help you. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. REACH is brought to you by Maven Recruiting Group, who specializes in placing executive assistants and support staff to the Bay Area's most prominent executives and companies. If you've enjoyed being part of our podcast community and are interested in becoming part of our candidate community, we're currently hiring for roles in San Francisco, Silicon Valley, and Los Angeles. You can visit us at www.mavenrec.com to see some of the roles we're currently working on and to submit your resume.